It is truly a precious time of year as we celebrate the incarnation of Christ. I hope it's something that you look forward to. We have no commands to celebrate a certain holiday in the scripture, but I, I certainly rejoice in the opportunity to celebrate the incarnation of Christ, knowing we are going to be singing Christmas hymns. I wanted to take us to a very unexpected Christmas passage. Before we turn there, I just want you to think about what we are celebrating this time of year. The second person of our triune God, God the Son, took on human flesh, being fully God and fully man. This was essential if you and I are ever going to be saved from our sin. If we're going to have any hope in life and certainly any hope in death. So we just sang the second song, What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleep, sleeping? Think about this child laid on a woman's lap in the most unlikely of circumstances. And then we answer who this child is in verse 1. This is none other than Christ the King. In verse 2 we sang, this is the Word made flesh. In verse 3, this is the King of kings salvation brings. It's incredible what we have the privilege of celebrating. The reality of God the Son coming into the world, taking on frail humanity in complete humility is astonishing. The incarnation of Christ is remarkable. My burden for us as we approach the Christmas season is that we as Christians are often more distracted by trivial things. That We are often consumed with The lights, the parties, the meals, the time with friends and family, the gifts. And we are not consumed marveling at the incarnation of Christ. That I say incarnation, I mean God the Son eternally existing, becoming man. Taking on full humanity in order for us to be saved. Christmas should be a reminder that there is no possible way for you and I to be perfected apart from God the Son becoming man. Christmas reminds us we cannot save ourselves. It reminds us that religious rituals could never bring us to God and that man's attempts to please the Father will always be lacking. So I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. Hebrews 10, we will be in verses 1 to 10. I want to give you a warning. This is a very unlikely Christmas passage. I'm sure uh, many of your, um, uh, if you do Advent readings, they're probably not telling you to turn to Hebrews 10. Some might. I would commend them for doing so. But uh, this is also a difficult passage. If you're new to expository preaching, this is one of those ones that is going to require careful listening and, and careful thought as we work through the arguments of the author. But also, this section is is focusing on the greatness of Christ's priestly ministry. From chapter 8 of Hebrews through chapter 10, verse 18, it is showing us why Christ Jesus is a greater high priest than any Levite could ever be. What Christ accomplished through his ministry is exponentially greater than any Levitical priest could accomplish by offering a sacrifice. The author goes to great lengths to contrast the ministry of Jesus with the ministry of the Levites, to contrast the sacrifice of Christ with Old Testament sacrifices. 
And you may rightly ask, it's a fair question, what does Jesus' priestly ministry have to do with Christmas? And I'm glad you asked, because that is what we are going to see in Hebrews chapter 10. The author is going to give us four reasons that Christ came into the world. That's our outline. I'll give you those points as we get to them in a few moments. But we're going to see four reasons that Christ came into the world. As we're working through this text that is absent of shepherds, angels, wise men, a manger, I want you to so clearly see the purpose of the eternal Son of God coming into the world to take on humanity. Because this is truly what you and I are celebrating this time of year. This is what believers rejoice in all year long. Why God the Son became man. I trust this passage will serve us well as we enter the holiday season to think rightly about Christ and his work. Let's begin by reading the whole passage. I'm going to start in verse 1 and read all the way down to verse 10. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they continually offer year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The author gives us four reasons that Christ came into the world. Four reasons that Christ came into the world. Number one, he came because the law cannot save us. This will cover us from verse one to four. Verse 1 to 4, he came because the law cannot save us. And I'll give you a few sub-points that the author gives us about the law in these verses, but that is the the theme of verse 1 to 4. The law cannot save. Verse 1, as he says, the law can never make us perfect. For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. So verse 1 in the Greek begins with the word shadow. It's placed emphatically forward. So in the Greek language, you can uh, the author may mix up the words. The word order is not as important because the, the grammar of each word tells us where it belongs in the, in the line of thought. Here, so he emphasizes the term shadow by placing it at the front. The author wants in our minds, as we consider that the law is unable to save us he wants us to think it's because the law is merely a shadow it's a shadow a shadow is contrasted in the second part of the verse with 
not the very form of things or not the actual reality. So think about this. What, what does it mean by shadow? It's a shadow resim, resembles the form but lacks the substance. It is a mere silhouette of the actual item. I uh, use the illustration with the teenagers, but if you looked out in the parking lot on a bright sunny day and the sun is positioned at the right spot, it will shine on a car and leave a nice shadow that looks the same shape as the car. If you saw a picture of that shadow, those of you who are uh, knowledgeable of automotives may say, I know exactly what kind of vehicle that is just by looking at the shadow. The, the form of the shadow shows you what the actual substance is in part. It gives you a, a dim picture of it. But if you went to get into that shadow and expect it to take you home today, you might be slightly cooler. The shadow does have some benefit in Florida. It gives us some uh, relief from the sun, but it would not take you anywhere. Uh, that is what the author is pointing to here, speaking of the Old Testament law, the sacrifices. They're a shadow. They're a dim reflection of realities to come. And those realities to come is namely the sacrifice of Christ. He says here, what is meant by the good things to come that the law is merely a shadow of? This is the author speaking of what God has promised, but it could not be delivered through the law. So God has made tons of wonderful promises to his people of what he would give. And the law could not deliver on any of those. Notice some of those would be the new covenant that promises believers a new heart. He's going to put the fear of God within their hearts, cause their heart of stone, turn to a heart of flesh. He promised a once-for-all sacrifice that gives believers full atonement, not a partial covering that you have to repeat every year. He promised a once-for-all sacrifice. He also promised a high priest that gives full access to God, a cleansed conscience and eternal redemption. These are the good things that the law could not give you. It's just a shadow. Then notice the whole verse together. I want you to look at the subject. The subject is the law. For the law, we're going to skip over the next phrase and find the verb, can never, and then the object, make perfect. The simple sentence here, verse 1, if the author didn't include a lot of additional information, it would just read this. For the law can never make perfect those who draw near. The law cannot do it. What does he mean? The, this term to make perfect is describing a true cleansing that would ensure access to God. This means the law cannot purge you and I of guilt. Performing religious rituals like the sacrifices that the Old Testament law required could never make one acceptable before the Lord. It can never cleanse our inner life to allow you to draw near to God with boldness. Notice that group that the law cannot perfect. Can't make perfect those who draw near. This term to draw near is used throughout Hebrews to say true worshipers. So even if you are a true worshiper longing to please God, longing to have right standing with God, you will never get that through the law. That's verse 1 for us. The law cannot make perfect. Look at verse 2. Its, its repetition proves its ineffectiveness. Verse 2 says, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshiper, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. 
verse 2 addresses an implied contradiction in the law. The contradiction is that if the law cleansed someone's inner life, they wouldn't need to continually offer sacrifices over and over and over. It supports the claim of verse 1 that the law doesn't bring that perfection. Why? Because if it did, you wouldn't need to repeat the sacrifice over and over. If there is a full and final sacrifice, if, if slaying this animal on the altar for atonement for sin actually cleanse the worshiper and make them stand before God righteous, what would be the point of doing the same sacrifice again next year? Why is the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament an annual reoccurring sacrifice? Pastor Matt Stanchek said it's like multiplying by the number zero. It doesn't matter how many times you do it, it does not yield any greater effect. No repetition of this shadow could replace the substance. He says here that if worshipers would have been fully cleansed, they would no longer have had consciousness of sins. This is not the idea of they would not have known sin, but rather their consciences would not have been under the continual burden of guilt. The idea is, if when they performed the animal sacrifice, if their conscience was suddenly cleansed, and they said, I know I was guilty, but now because this animal has been slain on my behalf, I stand righteous. I'm right with God. My conscience bears witness that I am innocent because of the blood of the animal. Saying they would have no longer had this guilt burdening on them, the, the implication is that they always had a plaguing sense of guilt because their sins were never cleansed, never washed away. The law was repeated over and over and showed us that it was ineffective. Verse 3, But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. Notice the contrast begins with the word but. What is he contrasting? He is saying there is a use for the law. It's not useless. It did accomplish God's purpose, but its purpose was not to make worshipers righteous. It was not to perfect you in your standing before God. It was not to cleanse your conscience. It's not why God gave the law. So what, why did he give the law? In those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. Those sacrifices were reminders that they were sinful. Every time they would perform the ceremony, if this was a, a layperson in Israel bringing their spotless lamb to be sacrificed, they recognized they're not going to see this lamb again. It is going to die. And what does that remind me of? I am a guilty sinner the wages of my sin is death. I should be in the place of this lamb. This lamb is a temporary covering, but it's not going to make me righteous. Repeated sacrifices serve to remind worshipers they were not cleansed. Every time they brought that animal to die, it reminded them of their sins. I just want to highlight a contrast. It's not in the passage here, but think about the difference between Old Testament sacrifices. What does it remind you and I of? We're guilty. We're sinners. We need a real cleansing. New Testament sacrifice of Christ. When we take of the Lord's table, Christ said, do this in remembrance of me. What are we remembering? Not that we are guilty, but that we have received grace. Uh, the sacrifice of animals reminds us you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. The sacrifice of Christ celebrating communion reminds us you've received the grace of God. You're forgiven. You're cleansed by His blood. So sweet to remember. Verse 4. 
One more reason the law is inadequate to save us. It cannot take away sins. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Animal sacrifices were never given to permanently take away the sins of the people. They offered a temporary covering, only delaying wrath to come. Impossible here is a term that means the the complete inability. It's a a term in Greek that means a power or an ability with an alpha at the beginning negating it. So there's there's no power, no ability. The, The blood of bulls and goats have no ability to remove sins from the sinner. They did serve to remind them of their sins back in verse 3. And they did serve as a shadow pointing to the substance that greater priest that was going to bring a greater sacrifice that would actually deal with their sins. So the law wasn't useless, but it was entirely powerless to save us of our sins. This verse highlights the nature of the sacrifice being a shadow because there is no real relation between the blood of animals and man's moral offense. Blood of animals does not cover our sin, cleanse our conscience. This is a foreshadowing of why it's so important that Christ become man to die for man's sins. It would be the not the blood of the animal that would bring about the real atonement, but the blood of a sinless man, God the Son. Now, getting to verse 5 and following, we'd see the second reason that Christ came into the world. That first reason, He came because the law cannot save us, in verse 5 to 7, he came to do the Father's will. To do the Father's will. In verse 5, the author quotes from Psalm 40, verse 6 to 8. And there he says, Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Notice the author is building upon the fact that that sacrifices can't save. And he says, Therefore, because these can't save... Therefore, when Christ comes into the world, here is what he says. It is preparing us to see the very purpose of Christ's coming. Those Old Testament sacrifices could not, but because of that, here is what Christ did. Notice the first phrase, when he comes into the world. This is a common Hebrew phrase for birth. Uh, a similar phrase is used back in Hebrews 1.6. And when he, God the Father, again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Uh, This is pointing to when God the Father brought the Son into the world. He didn't bring the Son into existence. The Son has always been. And in the Trinity with the Father, the Father, Son, and the Spirit have always been. It is rather, there is a point in time. As Pastor Rusty uh, read earlier from Galatians 4, uh, there was the fullness of time, Paul calls it in Galatians 4.4, 4, uh, whenever God sent forth his son to be born of woman, to be born under the law, to redeem those of us who are under the law. This is what the author of Hebrews is pointing to. When he comes into the world, or literally as he comes into the world, he says this. Uh, this is the pre-incarnate Christ message of here's why I'm going. See, I I told you there is some Christmas content in here. Here's why Christ is coming into the world. Here's what he says. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Now, let me pause here and tell you this is a quotation from Psalm 40. 
specifically verse 6, but the next few verses are a quotation from Psalm 40, verse 6 to 8. And these are difficult verses. Uh, There's a a difficult uh, theological topic called the way that the New Testament authors use the Old Testament. And I'll just, without getting into lots of details, tell you this is a very challenging use of the Old Testament because the author of Hebrews is quoting from the Greek Septuagint. Now, this is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So when David wrote Psalm 40, he wrote in Hebrew. Uh, Later, uh, translators translated the original Hebrew into Greek, and that would be the Septuagint. Many of our quotations in the New Testament are in the Septuagint, and usually there is a minimal difference between what is read in the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek Septuagint. But in this context, they're quite different. I will point that out at the end of the verse in Hebrews 10:5 it says but a body you have prepared for me in Psalm 40 verse 6 it says my ears you have opened these are quite different my ears you have opened and a body you have prepared for me but I want to present to you that there it's not as difficult as a connection as you might think uh, this phrase my ears in Hebrew always carries the connotation of obedience Uh, Your ears are what hear. And literally, David says in Psalm 46, you have dug out my ears. And the the idea of carving them out, uh, you could interpret that to be that David had rock hard ears, rock hard hearing. It says a, a heart that was unwilling to be submissive and God dug out his ears to prepare him to obey. That's the, the idea, the Hebrew concept, a Hebrew mind reading, my ears you have dug out, would read that, that God carved out his ears so that he could walk in obedience. And that is what the Greek Septuagint takes, is the concept. So when you see there, a body you have prepared for me. The idea is that God had to work, had to fashion this body to be prepared for obedience. Which now, just putting these together... I think it is an absolutely incredible quotation that the author of Hebrews takes Psalm 40. It's a psalm about David's deliverance. And in 6 to 8, he is pointing to a greater deliverer who would obey perfectly and would ultimately bring about the ultimate deliverance. And the psalmist takes that and says, these are the words of Christ before he comes into the world. This is what he says, a body you have prepared for me absolutely incredible it is only by means of the incarnation of christ that the will of god could be accomplished that you and i could possibly have salvation so god the father prepared a human body for god the son to take on humanity Uh, this term prepared is the idea it's where we get our english word for art it is speak of an artisan crafting something the father crafted A human body for God the Son. Jesus could not have obeyed the Father's will without this body that was prepared for Him. It was in the divine plan of God before the world was that God the Son would step into humanity, still being fully God and yet becoming fully man. This was the only way that you and I could be saved. Certainly by now you hear the Christmas emphasis here. There's no way for our salvation apart from the incarnation of Christ. Jesus, the the pre-existent 
eternal Son of God coming into humanity. Our scripture reading this morning spoke of Christ taking on humanity in three ways. In Hebrews 2.9, it said that he was made for a little while lower than the angels. That's speaking of the place of humanity. So that he might taste death for everyone. Hebrews 2.14, since the children share in flesh and blood, since that's what we are composed of, he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. And then thirdly, in 2.17, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. He had to be made like us. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Apart from the humanity of Christ, the Father preparing a body for the Son, you and I would have no hope of, uh, of, of avoiding eternal death. Christ tasted death for us. We'd have no hope of being the, the slavery to Satan and his power being broken. That's why Christ shared in flesh and blood. And we would have no hope to have true propitiation made for our sins, that our our sins be covered, the wrath of God be satisfied, than that he be made like his brethren in all things. This is why it's so important. The Father prepared a human body for Christ to carry out his will in perfect obedience. You sang this earlier, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It's my favorite Christmas hymn because of the rich theology in the song, but I'll remind you of what we sang. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. That by itself is incredible. Hail the incarnate deity. Deity in human flesh, incarnate. Pleased as man with men to dwell. God pleased as a man to dwell with men. Jesus our Emmanuel. Absolutely incredible truth. And beloved, this is what we celebrate this time of year is Christ, God the Son, taking on humanity. Let's get back to the quote that the author is using from Psalm 40. Uh, Picking up in verse 5, this phrase I skipped over, sacrifice and offering you have not desired. The author seeks to set up another contrast here between uh, the Old Testament sacrificial system and what Christ came to do. So listen to the contrast. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. The idea is Christ is not coming to present Old Testament sacrifices. He is coming with a body, we'll see, to be the sacrifice. In verse 6, he carries on the idea, In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Now here, between verse 5 and verse 6, the author uses four terms to describe the Old Testament sacrificial system. Sacrifice, offering, burn offerings, and sacrifices for sin. And between these four, he is encompassing the entirety of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Uh, the, the different offerings that would have been made. Sacrifice refers to the animal victim being offered. Offering denotes a, a meal or a drink offering. Whole burn offerings describes the voluntary sacrifices, a thanksgiving offering brought to the Lord. And sacrifices for sin describe uh, that of an offering made for atonement, like the Day of Atonement. These four designations, again, cover the whole system, all the sacrifices. So what is being pointed out here? 
But when Christ is coming into the world, he says, this is not what pleases the Father. Notice the language in 5. You haven't desired these. In verse 6, you have taken no pleasure in them. This should have been well known to an Old Testament saint. Someone who knew their Old Testament, they would have known Jeremiah 6.20, where God says your burnt offerings are not acceptable, your sacrifices are not pleasing to me. Amos chapter 5, verse 21 to 24, I want to read that to you. God says here through Amos, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take, them, take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You hear it already. What is God saying? That he never wanted these sacrifices, but God, you're the one who commanded them. In Exodus 24, we even see them all the way back to Abraham, the patriarchs presenting sacrifices. God, surely you wanted these. You asked for them. And Christ is getting to the heart of the issue. You know what? What does the Lord want? It's obedience. It is not these sacrifices, the blood of animals that brings pleasure to the Father. It's the obedience of His children. Let's go on to verse 7 with me. Verse 7 returns to that idea of why Christ came into the world. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the, book of the, in the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. This is why I said, the point is, he came to do the will of the Father. This is what Christ says. This is the very purpose of his coming. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. What is it that satisfies the Father? It wasn't the sacrificial system. Uh, that's very clear throughout all of the scripture. It is the obedience of the Son. What is it that could possibly grant you and I eternal redemption, eternal life, the, the blessings that the law could not deliver, the obedience of the Son to the Father's will? When he says, behold, I have come, it's an accomplished fact. He is, he's saying, I have done this. And then he says here, it, it was written of me in the book of the scroll. And this is a, a, what the New Testament authors do to prove a point definitively is they quote the Old Testament. And they would say, uh, it is written, or thus says the Lord. And what does that do? It brings in the authority of God to say, this is not some new revelation. This was already written. It was already written of Christ that he would come and he would do the will of the Father. And that's what Christ declares here. Christ is coming to fulfill the will of the Father. This is not a plan B. It's not as though God started with the plan of the sacrificial system. Oh, that'll make him perfect. And that failed, so now Christ is coming to help out. No, this has been the plan all along. The sacrificial system was a shadow pointing to Christ, the substance, the whole time. The sacrificial system was that shadow beside the car that won't get you anywhere and Christ will actually take you and deliver you salvation. This is central to what we celebrate at Christmas and central to our faith that God is satisfied in the obedience of Christ, not religious rituals. Think about this in the context. Not even a religious ritual that God prescribed, like Old Testament sacrifices. 
none of these could take away our sins. There are many things that you and I are called to do as believers, things that are good, things that I would exhort you to do, that you should exhort me to do, things like prayer, study of Scripture, uh, gathering together in worship, singing, serving, baptism, the Lord's table, fellowship together. You and I should do these. But in the same way that God prescribes these and prescribed the Old Testament law, we should recognize none of these can make us right with God. There's no religious activity, not even beloved things that the Scripture commands that you and I should be doing. None of these can grant us righteousness, only the perfect obedience of the Son. This is why the incarnation was necessary, because without it, the will of God would not be fulfilled. We so often think, I'm doing all these things, why is life so difficult? And I'm doing all these disciplines that the pastor said to do. Why is my marriage still failing? Why am I struggling with this sin? Why do my kids still disobey? I want to present to you, the problem is not in those actions. Those actions are very good. They're a great benefit to your heart and soul. Your hope for battling sin in your life, though, is not in your ability to perform. It's in the sanctifying work of God in your life. So by putting all of your trust in the work of Christ, in His obedience to the Father, you are now going to be equipped to face those trials and suffering. Because you're going to face them by faith. You're going to go to the Scripture not thinking of it as a, a, a way to get out of these difficulties in your life. If I just read my Bible every day, I won't have this same struggle. But rather, it's by faith. You're going to say that the Word of God is what the Lord will use in my life to put this into death and to put on righteousness. What good is a sacrifice without obedience? What good is service to God without a heart of yielded faith? I'll just give you one example. Think of Saul, King Saul, back in 1 Samuel 15. What good was his sacrifice without obedience? He was given an instruction to utterly destroy the Amalekites. And what did he do? He kept King Agag around. He kept many of the choice spoils. And what did he say when Samuel came and confronted him? It's all right. I'm going to perform a lot of sacrifices. Look at all of these animals. Yeah, I know God said to kill them, but I have a better plan than God. I'm going to do sacrifices. That's going to please the Lord. That's my paraphrase, of course. But verse 22, Samuel says, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifices, and to heed than the fat of rams. The Lord cares about obedience. The, the Father is pleased with obedience, and that is what the Son performed on our behalf. He took on the body that God prepared for him, and he fully obeyed the will of the Father. This is so precious. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. Why did he come? He came to perfectly obey the Father. John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is what grants our acceptance before God. Let's move on to verse 8 and 9. The third reason that Christ came into the world is to establish a greater sacrifice. In verse 8, these two verses go together. So notice he says, After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, 
nor have you taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. Now we need to read these verses together because you notice verse 8 begins after saying above. Verse 9 begins, then he said. So he is contrasting these two statements and calling us to look at the word order, calling us to look at the fact that first he said God wasn't pleased with these. And you might notice in verse 8, all of these are plural now. So earlier when he spoke of them in 5 and 6, they were all singular. Now I believe by making them plural, he is highlighting the repetition. They were done over and over and over. And no matter how many times you did it, that's not what God desired and he's taken no pleasure in them, even though they were offered according to the law. That's not what pleased the Lord. That's what takes us to verse 9. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. That's what pleases the Father. The Son coming to fulfill the will of God in perfect obedience, carrying out the will of God in every facet, and then going to the cross. That is why he needed a body, so that he could die in our place. And notice the phrase, he takes away the first in order to establish the second. So what was the first? It was Old Testament sacrifices. What is the second? It is his own sacrifice. So Christ removes the Old Testament sacrifices of you thinking there's any hope in those to make you right with God, and he establishes the second. A term takes away is a a very strong term. In some uh, contexts, it can mean to execute, like to take someone away, to take them out. In this context here, it's to take something away so that it no longer remains. The idea is it's completely removed. He removed any need for the sacrificial system. There's no need for the shadow because the substance has come now. What does it mean that he has established the second? He has put something new into force, into operation. The sacrifice for sinners once and for all has been established. This is speaking of Christ as his in his full obedience to the Father, he establishes the once for all sacrifice that never needs to be repeated. If you and I have our faith entirely in his work, in his obedience to the Father, we have all the benefits that are promised. Christ establishes a greater sacrifice. That is the third reason Christ came into the world, to establish a greater sacrifice. Finally, look with me down to verse 10. The fourth reason that Christ came into the world, he came to make us holy. Came to make us holy. It says in verse 10, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. By this will refers to God's will that Christ would come into the world and offer himself for our redemption. That's God's will for us, that that he would send his son and live a perfect life and that he would give himself. He would offer his body. This will includes his spotless life. Everything that the son did and taking on humanity, living a sinless life and then offering himself as the sacrifice. Christmas is about the will of God to deliver man from our bondage to sin through the perfect obedience of the son. I think this is often lost on us at Christmas time. 
We think so little of what Christ accomplished in the incarnation, why he had to become man, why he came into the world. And the author says, don't miss this. He came to make us holy. Notice the result of his obedience. We have been sanctified. This is highlighting the effect of Christ's work. The sanctification is speaking of being set apart unto holiness. And this is a a past completed action. We have been sanctified, or you might say it, we are fully and finally sanctified. We are in position before God, completely holy. That's what the author is saying. You could never improve upon this position. You don't need to do Old Testament sacrifices, and even the things that we are commanded to do in the New Testament could not improve upon that position. It certainly is not me saying they're irrelevant and don't do them. That is to say, none of our actions could improve upon this. We are made holy, completely holy before God because of his sacrifice. And notice what it is that was what God used to sanctify us through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. What could make sinners to be saints, the vile to be holy, the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. The perfect, sinless life of Christ, His body being offered on our behalf. This is certainly speaking of His sacrificial death. How could you and I be made holy? Only by the sinless Son of God stepping out of heaven, taking on humanity, living a sinless life, and offering His body for us. This is what Christmas is about, beloved. Christ came into the world for the purpose of fulfilling the Father's will so that through His full obedience, including His death, you and I might have life. He came into the world to die so that we would be made holy and sanctified. And notice one more thing in this verse, the end of the verse. The permanence of His work is once for all. There's nothing more to be done for you and I to be acceptable before God. We just look to Christ with faith. That is what makes us acceptable before God. His sacrifice is never to be repeated again. Question here, who are the beneficiaries of Christ's work? Who are those who are given this position of holiness before God forever? I think that's very important for us to consider. Look down to verse 14 with me. Verse 14 is very similar to verse 10. He says, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now, you'll notice many similarities. The offering is the same. It is singular. In verse 14, you see by one offering. In verse 10, you see him say the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Christ is the one making the perfect uh, Sacrifice he makes perfect in verse 14. That's uh, the contrast of verse 1, where the law could never make us perfect. Uh, Verse 14 says that by his offering, he perfected us for all times. He he made us right before God. He gave us perfect access. But then I want you to look at the end of the verse. These are the recipients. They are now called those who are sanctified. And this looks very similar to verse 10, we who have been sanctified through his offering, but grammatically they are different because verse 14 
is present tense, where it says they're sanctified. So it, it doesn't mean we presently are sanctified in our position. That's what verse 10 means. It means we are presently being sanctified. This is an incredible. So verse 10 is speaking of our positional sanctification. What does that mean? We're holy before God by Christ's sacrifice. Verse 14, how do you know if you have been perfected before God by the offering of Christ? It is for those who are being sanctified. So if you're a believer, you presently are holy before God. You can't get more holy than you are through the work of Christ. But what is he saying about us in verse 14? You know that you belong to Christ if you are right now becoming more and more holy in your life. If you are presently, actively being sanctified, you should have full assurance. Why? Because that's the work of God confirming that His blood has covered your sin, that your faith is not in rituals. You, you perform the, what the New Testament commands because you love Him, because you've been called according to His purpose. Here's what we must examine. Are you trusting in His once-for-all sacrifice to make you perfect before God? And secondly, are you growing in sanctification? Putting sin to death and putting on righteousness. You're certainly striving in that list of spiritual disciplines that we talked about earlier. Your prayer, your study of Scripture, your serving. But you're not looking to those to save you. You're doing those out of the abundance of your love for Christ because He has delivered you. He is sanctifying you. Well, beloved, this is why Christ came into the world. So that your position before God would be perfect holiness and that the progress of your life would be growing in holiness. He came because the law cannot save us. He came to do the Father's will. He came to establish a greater sacrifice and he came to make us holy. Let's bow together. Father, you are so gracious. I think of the most repeated verse in the Old Testament that you are abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You do not lack this loyal love that treats sinners in a way that we could never deserve. You demonstrate your own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. You sent him while we were still in hardened rebellion and he declared he wasn't coming to do a sacrifice, but coming to do your will to establish the new covenant through his blood to make us holy. And we see your work in our lives because we are being made holy. As the word of God is preached, we hear it, we receive it by faith and we grow in respect to our salvation. And Father, we attest this is all of you. This is not of us. So. As we celebrate the incarnation of Christ this Christmas, may we not be distracted by what is temporary, by mere shadows, by things that are lacking the substance, but may we be captivated and may our knowledge of the incarnation of Christ and all that he came to accomplish fuel our worship of you and fuel our sanctification. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.